This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. As we talk about leadership and learning, um, one of my greatest learnings recently in my life has been about discipline. I've always felt like I was not a very disciplined person. Um, which is interesting because I, you can still accomplish a lot in life even though you don't have a lot of discipline. And uh, I'm going to give you some of the to-dos that I've learned about discipline, and, and it really is – it's changed my life, right? So um, one of the first principles I teach about it is we've got to learn to magnify existing discipline rather than trying to generate a new discipline. If that makes sense to you. What I mean by this is everybody has certain gifts. Everybody has certain talents, abilities. And when it, when it comes down to it, for example, one of my great uh, attributes or strengths I, that based on um, an assessment – in fact, let me just tell you where to go do this. If you go to the website AuthenticHappiness.org, AuthenticHappiness.org, you can take an assessment that's called the VIA Character Strengths Assessment. And it will evaluate you on 24 of the top character strengths that, uh, that, that you know, exist. And it comes from years and years of research, over thousands and thousands of, um, of years of, of writings about character strength. And what they've come up with is basically 24 different character strengths. This is all validated academic research about happiness. It actually comes from Penn State University. So if you go to AuthenticHappiness.org and take the VIA character strengths test, it will rank your character strengths from number one to number 24. And the research shows that when people are really focused on what they do well, their number one strength, then it actually um, makes you happier. And so my number one strength is uh, social intelligence. My number two strength is like um, uh, spirituality. A number three strength is a love of learning. Um, number fourth strength is uh, humor. Uh, fifth strength is perspective and wisdom. So I have these different strengths, okay? And I've actually built my entire career around them. And in those areas, I have a lot of discipline. I'm very disciplined at paying attention socially to what's going on in the situation or being able to um, find the perspective and wisdom in something. I can I can see that very quickly. My 24th area of strength is actually self-regulation. So I don't regulate myself very well. And what I found is instead of me trying to go generate more self-regulation, what I could do instead is actually get the benefits of regulating by using my other strengths. For example, when I sit with clients and I start to uh, it's easy for me to get backlogged and 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 start having each client go over about five or ten minutes. But what I found is instead of just being a lot better at regulating myself, what I might want to do instead is just use my strengths of social intelligence. Like what is it like to be the person out there waiting for me for 15 or 20 minutes? And when I actually connect into what I'm already good at, I'm better at regulating myself. So use what you already do really well to help you be more disciplined. Does that make sense? But in order to do that, you might want to go find out what your character strengths are. I love it because my kids now, we've gone through this assessment together, and everyone in my family knows what their top five or six strengths are. And the rule then would be we're always going to ask them to use those strengths 
to to do the things they need to do in their lives. So always start where you already have some success, okay? That's rule number one. Rule number two, choose to focus your firepower. Researchers have found that you only have so much willpower in a day. And it really is a finite resource. And the longer you go in the day and every decision you have to make actually lowers your ability to make the next decision better. Um, And so that's why in the morning you have the ability to get a lot of stuff done maybe, but at the end of the day you start wearing out. It's called decision fatigue, and many people are suffering from so many decisions in their life that they run out, and by the end of the day they literally have a harder time getting to the gym at the end of the day. They have a harder time exercising um, focus. And so what the – one of the – a great uh, book is called um, Essentialism by Greg McKeon, and he basically talks about a garden hose metaphor where uh, if you you put your hand on the hose, if you don't put your finger over the end of the hose, you know, you've got like a a drizzle of water. But the minute you focus it and add a little more pressure – to the end of the hose, you can direct it a little bit easier. So what you might want to do is make sure that you're putting the things that you need to really exercise discipline um, to do, put those earlier in the day and make it so at night, if you, for example, have a tendency to go into the kitchen late at night and start eating, um, one reason that happens is probably because you've run out of willpower. So you'll probably want to create some other way to to focus on it. Sean Acor, in his book, Happiness Advantage, has a rule that he calls the 22nd rule. He teaches that there's a, there's a concept called activation energy. It takes energy to get a project or an activity started, right? It's like momentum. If you want to get something done, in a, you, know, you know, to do a project at your house, it takes energy to get the project started. And the goal would be to always make the energy it takes to get started so easy that you can get it started within 20 seconds. If it takes you longer than 20 seconds to get something started, you're probably not going to do it. Now, by the way, you can take – you could actually take things, activities that you don't want to be doing. Like if you watch too many Netflix shows or whatever, maybe what you ought to do is start making sure that your phone isn't near you. If you leave your phone upstairs in your bedroom and you're down, um, you know, down in the kitchen, you're going to be less likely to go watch the Netflix show because your phone is going to be 20 seconds away. So the goal is very simply minimize your activation energy. Do whatever you can. He gives an example of taking the batteries out of the remote. When he was doing his dissertation, he spent too much time watching TV. So he put the batteries in a completely different part of the house. So every single time he um, needed to use the remote or turn the TV on, he would have to go out to the – or up to his room to get the batteries. It's just a simple idea. So discipline, a lot of times, you don't need to be disciplined to do the entire project. You just need to be disciplined enough to do the first 20 seconds and and get started on it. And then the last rule about creating more discipline in your life would be rely heavily on routines. Once you've used and and kind of created the easiest path and the pattern and you know what your greatest strengths are and you are able to focus your time and attention, then make it a routine. Make it a habit. I know people that have, have now had an incredible discipline of knowing where their wallet and their keys are because they simply made one habit of coming home every day and putting their wallet and their keys in the exact same place every single day. Once you've made something a routine 
a habit, right? And the habit eventually will change the way your brain is working because of neuroplasticity, they call it. Once you've done the process over and over and over enough, your brain will just kind of do it automatically. Until then, find a way to actually discipline all your focus and your energy on the routine. And once you make the routine, boom, it'll make life a lot easier, right? Now, there's there's a ton of learning behind all of that and three or four books that you can go get. But start doing something today and don't just chalk it up to uh, life's hard. I'm not going to do that. Discipline we all need. But again, you also already have existing strengths where discipline is already in there. It's already embedded in you. So start – if you're going to start somewhere, start focusing on what you're already good at and use that to help you through the things that you want to work on more. Uh, that's uh, some basics uh, 101 on discipline and developing discipline in our lives. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Man, honored today to have a true blue American hero on the line with us. Scott Kelly is a former military fighter pilot and a test pilot, an engineer, a retired astronaut, and a retired U.S. Navy captain. In October 2015, he set the record for the total accumulated number of days spent in space, the single longest space mission by an American astronaut, And uh, which, by the way, blew my mind. It's already That record's already been broken. Uh, twice, um, believe it or not. and But uh, Captain Scott Kelly is joining us today to talk about his book, Endurance, A Year in Space, A Lifetime of Discovery. Discovery. Captain Kelly, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, my pleasure. And I, uh, yeah, the, the record that was broken twice was the total number of days in space. I still have the the single longest mission, mission for an American astronaut. Do yeah. you really? I mean, 520 days was was because and four missions you've had, um, but you were in space on one flight, one one mission for 340 days. Is that right? Yeah. yeah Unbelievable! Well, wow. Well, we're honored to have you here and. I uh, when I told my son that I had, was going to have you on the on the phone today on the show today, he just was jealous as ever. So just know that there's a lot of people that that look up to you, that revere you, and thank you too for your service to our country. It's amazing what you've been able to do. Oh, I appreciate that. You bet. Now, talk to me. What what is it like? Um, 520 days in space, by the way, and you've now become even more notorious because of some of the research they did with your brother, who also uh, was an astronaut, Mark Kelly. Um, and they're finding out that your your DNA is apparently different and has changed by being in space um, than your twins. Yeah, well, I don't know if notorious is the right word, <laughs> but maybe uh, it got a little bit of attention. Yeah, it did. Um, yeah, I read that. I read that about my DNA being Does, different. Now, what's it like to have your brother, Mark Kelly, who's also an astronaut? I mean, are you – I guess you can just always drop the fact that you've got more records than he does. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and now I don't even have to say we're identical twins anymore because my DNA has been changed. You've shifted enough. How how has how has going to space impacted your body? What What has it done to you, and do you notice it? 
No, I don't notice anything. I mean, certainly when I got back, I, uh, you know, there was a readjustment period. Uh, yeah, I talk about that in my, in my book, yeah. actually right at the beginning. But, uh, yeah, now I don't feel any differently as a result of my time in space. What do you notice? To me, I've always wondered, especially with the International Space Station, what are relationships like there? I mean, I know you're professionals and you're there to do business, but what happens when you show up and you meet each other and do you ever just think, whoa, that guy's got an attitude? Well, you know the people you're going to fly in space with generally for years prior. So um, I say generally because there's uh, I had the experience where I was on the space station because I was there so long. They had a, a crew member swap out, and there was a guy, a uh, Kazakh guy, that came up to the space station that I didn't even know what the guy looked like before he showed up, <laughs> um, which was kind of unusual. But, you know, everyone's a professional, and we're very, you know, well-vetted. Yeah. They're carrying space agencies. So, you know, there's it's rare for there to be a problem with people getting along does i mean i guess too when you're in charge of some of these missions and and commander of the mission um there is i guess there's a hierarchy there as well so even though you're professionals do do you ever have to pull rank or is it just so obvious what needs to be done yeah really the latter yeah Um, you know everyone knows what their role is and um you know, being the commander, yeah, there's a little bit of, you know, organizational work um, that goes into it on a on a day-to-day basis. But it's not like you're up there barking orders at people. Yeah. Um, you know, mostly that role is um, important during an emergency on board. And, uh, but otherwise, it's you're just all kind of like colleagues and friends. Did you notice um, and talk to us about it? Because I I assume with you, there is a moment where, you know, you've done this so much. uh, You were I think you were on two um, where where you uh, you commanded two shuttle discoveries, space shuttles. And then you went up in the Soyuz, uh, Russian Soyuz spacecraft. Was it another two times? I flew as the pilot of the space shuttle discovery on my first flight. I was a commander Space Shuttle Endeavor on my second flight, and then I flew twice on the Soyuz after that. Did What took your breath away? When you think back to this um, and all of your experiences in space, talk about a few of the moments that really just blew your mind. You know, launching, um, you know, on the Space Shuttle the first time, the mind blower. Oh, I... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, uh, landing the space shuttle as the commander was exciting, and uh, you know a uh, highlight of my flying career. Um, you know, spending a year in space for me was a uh, a significant life event. Um, the spacewalks that I did on the space station this last time, and then the uh, you know coming back on the Soyuz is a is a crazy experience. Is it really just? Just the ride is crazy. Yeah, it's like, you know, the way I describe it often is like, it's kind of like going over Niagara Falls in a barrel. <laughs> wow. So while you're on fire. Yeah. <laughs> a burning barrel as you're flying over 
uh, Niagara. What's it like? I can't imagine the countdown as you're as you're basically strapped into fuel boosters and, you know, knowing the potential, you know, dangerousness of it all. What's that like as you're waiting for the countdown of the space shuttle to take off? Uh, you know, for the shuttle, you have a lot to do. Uh, certainly, you know, your first time, you don't really know what to expect. Um, you know, leading up to it, you do think about your mortality, or at least I did. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the fact that this is risky, I could get killed. Um, but then, you know, on the day, the day of, you're, you know, you're focused on what you're doing, and you, I think you've put behind most of the apprehension. Now, you know, when you're getting ready to launch on a rocket with 7 million pounds of thrust, it's serious business. Um, and, and you, you definitely realize that, no question. Oh, that's amazing. What, um, how did it change you just as a, as a person? Has it changed you? I mean, I imagine being away from your loved ones, your, your daughters, um, your fiancé. I mean, what's that like to, to come back after 340 days? Um, you know, I think the experience, especially when you spend a lot of time in space and you have the, uh, the time to look at the Earth and uh, think about your, the privilege that you have to see the planet like that and see how incredibly beautiful it is. Yet, you know, the environment looks fragile. Our atmosphere looks fragile. There's certain parts of the Earth that are um, you know, almost always covered in pollution. But you can, you know, you... I think you appreciate uh, what we have here more. And, uh, you know, you also recognize that there's a lot of uh, bad stuff that happens on the earth because you follow the news and it's almost always bad news. Yeah. So I think the experience, you know, having this different perspective, some people describe it as an orbital perspective, uh, makes you a more, um, you know, I think empathetic person and someone who's more kind of, uh, I don't know, in touch with humanity, maybe? Yeah. No, powerful. Um, Again, we're speaking with uh, Captain Scott Kelly, who uh, still holds many records, or some records, uh, the the single longest space mission, for example, uh, 340 days in space as an American astronaut. He also is the author of the book Endurance, A Year in Space, A Lifetime of Discovery. I mean, you've also, Scott, had your hands on, I mean, the Hubble the Hubble Space Telescope, you were on that mission. You, you've been around a lot of pretty monumental things. Yeah, I've had a, a privileged uh, career at, at NASA. I, um, you know, I just feel lucky to, you know, gotten more there when I did and had the experiences I uh, was able to have. I mean, I having flown on the shuttle twice and the Soyuz twice and spent 500 days on the space station and got to do a few spacewalks. I, you know, pretty much got to do, I think, you know, just about everything there is uh, to do in, you know, the time that I was there um, at NASA, which was 20 years almost. Mm. And you really are kind of an ambassador. Do you feel like you're more of an ambassador to the world, um, just because being on an international space station is, did that change your view at all from just being an American astronaut? I am the United Nations champion for space. Hmm. So yes, I am. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This is this is even bigger than something the United States has handed <laughs> you. 
Is it? Uh... Yeah, so yeah, it's uh, you know, it's it's nice, I guess, you know, to be able to, you know, for people to look towards me for you know commentary on things that we do in space, and um, you know, for people to you know associate associate with me me with something that you know I feel very strongly about. Yeah, that's that's fine. Yeah. How did you? Um... What advice do you give for the rest of us that uh, that aren't up there orbiting, never had the chance to orbit? What are we missing? What are we not getting just because we're so we, – where we can't see the forest for the trees? Well, I think when people look up and they look at the sky, they think it's like infinite. Nah, not really. It's uh, – our atmosphere kind of looks like a thin film over the surface. Not oh, wow. that big. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think, you know, I, I, those things I described, you know, this uh, orbital perspective, this, uh, you know, sense of uh, connection to the Earth um, and humanity is, is something that if, uh, you know, more people had uh, the opportunity to find space, I think, you know, people would certainly be able to, you know, experience that as well. And, you know, I think, you know, as we you know, continue to march forward in time, those opportunities will um, increase. Um, I don't know what that was. But... <laughs> you were just beamed up. Yeah, I'm in my car, but uh, I'm not driving. So. <laughs> That's good. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think people will have those opportunities, and I think that'll be great for our uh, for humanity. Yeah. No, I, I think so, too. What do you uh, – help us understand, too, because we talk about NASA funding. We talk about the space program, how some we've, we've backed off some of the funding um, uh, for some of these things. Why do we need and do we need a strong space program? I, you know, I think for, for a lot of reasons. Um, you know, the technology uh, we get uh, from doing stuff that seems impossible uh, is – technology that we use on earth and it improves our lives i think we're naturally you know explorers it's part of our dna um and you know history has shown us that you know civilizations that stop uh, exploring and growing and expanding cease to exist so you know space flight and space is our future now i don't think we're all going to move to space Mm. but um you know having that as a destination for some of Earth's population, Mars is an example, is going to be important. And I think also the uh, inspirational value of having a space program where, uh, you know, kids can be inspired to, uh, because they're inspired to work for NASA and maybe be an astronaut or an engineer or a scientist, um, that is something that helps our economy in the United States. It helps our country. So, you know, all those kids aren't going to go work for NASA, but if the space program uh, inspires kids to do better in their science and math homework, mm. that benefits all of us. Absolutely. Were, were you were you a big science kid? Were you the mathematician? Did you know deep no, down? Was, yeah, that's the other thing that's interesting about me is that I was a really bad student. And, uh, <laughs> You know, spent the first, like, 13 years of my education staring out the window. Uh, And it wasn't until I found a book myself, which was The uh, Right Stuff by Tom Wolfe. Oh, there you go. 
inspired me to, you know, work harder to become a engineer because I wanted to fly airplanes and then fly in space someday. That is, isn't that amazing. So you're motivated by hearing the story and and reading the book. Um, uh, some uh, some some literary approach to the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how amazing is that? And then that gets one of our, our great uh, astronauts up there. Um, and by the way, I've got to ask you, just because I love uh, kind of the relationship side of life, you're stuck on a, a space station. Um, what are some of your funniest memories of, of and interactions? What are some of the things that stand out for you where you think, oh, that's just funny, no matter where you are? You know, uh, specific... You know, I, I really... Like sharing specific uh, humorous anecdotes, I would have to think about that for a while. <laughs> um, you know, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of, you know, you're living up there, right? Yeah. So you're living there. Your roommates. People for a long time. Yeah. So there's funny stuff that goes on and you play, you know, jokes on one another. You know, my first flight, the, one of my crewmates hit all my underwear. <laughs> well, what do you, you know? do then? I just didn't care, which was really good, because I was in space. So yeah. Why, why, why would I care about my underwear? Yeah, who cares about but, that? But that... it was really good practice for spending a year in space, because then I didn't have to change my underwear very often. <laughs> That's right, yeah. The man that just didn't care. Oh, how fun, though. Is um, And I guess you have two daughters. What uh, what what do you want them to remember, um, and how do you keep a relationship with them if you're— up in space, are they? Are you allowed to communicate back home very often? How regularly do you get to talk? Um, yeah, we have a, a pretty good connection to the Earth with a satellite link where you can make phone calls and email, even video conferences on the weekend. But when you said, "What do I want them to remember?" What do I yeah. want them? To, I would like them to remember everything, but um, they don't, do they? <laughs> yeah, they just don't. Do um, because I, you you really put yourself in an interesting place uh, because you become a hero. You become so many people look up to you. You've seen the world in a way that only a few have seen it. Does how does that play on you? Just as as a human being, do do you feel more of a responsibility? Yes, yeah, you know I think having that uh, privileged uh, position in in my career and that perspective makes me, uh, you know, feel a, you know, responsibility to give back to the, uh, you know, the people that sent me there. Yeah. What do you... All the U.S. Uh, citizens, I guess. So you're, you're, you've, you've got a book, Endurance, A Year in Space, A Lifetime of Discovery. What What's next for you in your life? You know, I'm working on a couple other books right now, and... Um, you know, after that, I do a lot of public speaking, but after that, you know, once I get through that in the next year or so, I'll have to see. I'll have to figure something out. Maybe a second career? Maybe. Maybe you could drive bus for the school district? Maybe I'll go on the senior tour. Oh, wouldn't that be cool? The problem with that is I'm not very good at golf, but I always <laughs> hear other people say that. So. Yeah, you're going to go play the senior tour. Well, we appreciate your time. I know you're a very, very busy man. But uh, again, I want to thank you for your service and just giving hope, I think, to everybody. You don't have to be a great student at first. You do have to find some motivation. 
And then you got to work hard. You didn't come by this easily. You've you've done a lot of amazing things. Uh, Captain Scott Kelly, so appreciate you and your, your time. Again, the name of the book is Endurance, A Year in Space, A Lifetime of Discovery. Thanks, Matt. Thank appreciate you. It. Take care. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see and be the good in the world. coach would have put me in fourth quarter we'd have been state champions because life doesn't come with a handbook you need a coach here's dr matt and his coaching corner Play ball. welcome back friends you know how cool would that be just to i'm just gonna go to space i'm gonna i'm gonna just go fly for 540 520 days total Floating through space, four different trips he took, and um, man, does that not does that not keep you uh, feeling young? You would think, and then going to every high school that you ever visit, every school you talk to, all these kids, all the energy of these people that would love to hear every story you've got. Uh, it's it's powerful. So one of the things I thought we could talk about in our coaches' corner today is how do you stay young? What are some ways? that we can, as uh, human beings, stay young in spirit and actually find uh, that that youth, that little spring in our step that sometimes we lose as we just get stuck here on Earth. Many just call it, I guess, gravity, but some, it's just depression. We fall into a funk and we're not quite uh, as interested in life anymore as we used to be. We're not as curious as we used to be. So I'm going to give you some tools, some ideas to help you uh, stay young in spirit. The first principle that we will talk about is how uh, is we got to move out of the shallow end of the pool. Quit being satisfied with knowing a little about a lot of things. And instead, what if we could actually try to take our knowledge a little bit deeper and go deeper into something. Do you feel like in your own life you have a deep, deep knowledge about anything? Have you studied a concept or an idea or an area of expertise? And and maybe it's your career, but do you have other areas as well in your life that you have uh, where you have studied deeply? You know, if um, if we keep pushing for deeper waters, think about it. When kids are young. They, they, they do play in the shallow end of the pool, right? But you may notice that they always seem to be drawn to go down to those deeper and deeper waters. Even if they're hanging onto the wall, they're drawn to the deeper water. And as adults, I feel like many of us have lost our curiosity that drives us to the deeper end of the pool. So we've got to learn to engage our curiosity a little bit more and uh, and see if we can't find something that interests us. It could be anything, a hobby like fly fishing. It could be social media. It could be learning to run social media better, maybe a hobby like uh, you know dance or some uh, religious field of study where we're going to take the topic deeper and actually become really, really uh, good at it, so good at it that maybe people would want to hear you talk about it. And uh, so that's that's just a simple idea that I think all of us could do to find more passion in our lives is move out of the shallow end of the pool. Another way I found just in my own life is we've got to laugh a lot more. Some researchers claim that children laugh from three to four hundred times a day, while adults only laugh about twenty times a day. And uh, if you think about it too, that means kids are getting more of the neurochemicals that you that you get when you laugh. Um, that uh, and adults aren't getting uh, you know a tenth of that, so we've got to figure out a way to laugh a lot more. And um, one of the fu- funny things I found too about laughter is 
It is so contagious. If you don't believe me, go find a simple um, video of uh, kids like on YouTube laughing, like little babies laughing. Somebody sent me one the other day of just this cute little, you know, chunky little chubby kid, uh, baby in a diaper, just laughing. And I, I just watching it, you immediately start laughing because it is contagious. Um, Laughing burns calories, they say, 10% to 20% increase in your heart rate, which means you could burn about 10 to 40 calories by simply laughing 10 to 15 minutes. Laughing is good for your relationships. Research shows that couples who use laughter and smile when discussing a touchy subject feel better uh, in the immediacy and re- uh, immediately after the discussion and reports higher levels of satisfaction in their relationship. Uh, laughter is attractive. Researchers have found that women laugh 126% more than men in cross-gender conversations, with men preferring to be the one prompting the laughter. Nothing is more attractive than when, I guess, a man makes a joke and a woman actually laughs at it. Ha <laughs> ha! So it is attractive in some ways. It's also good for your memory. You're more likely to retain things if you're learning and laughing at the same time. And it enhances immunity. It improves sleep. It uh, it eases digestion. It enhances your oxygen intake. It boosts immune function. So if you want to look younger and feel younger, you got to get 20 minutes of laughter a day. One of the great ways to do that nowadays is Netflix, YouTube. There's so many ways. Um, just, you know, watching Studio C from BYU Broadcasting or find some way to get more laughter into your life. Another one of uh, the ways that I've found that you could put a little more spring in your step is break some of your own rules. A lot of us grew up with really strict, uh, stringent kind of boundaries or protocols that we were living our lives by. And, um, you know, I know people that uh, were empty nesters, and the minute they became empty nesters, everything in the life changed for them. They decided they're going to break a bunch of rules. They can go on short vacations. They could go take extended weekends. They don't even have to dress to walk around the house anymore. They're breaking all their rules, simply adding some excitement to your life by by, uh, breaking some of your own rules. Now, I wouldn't break the big ones, right? But there's a lot of little things that we think we must do every day. Hey, maybe you don't need to have the bran flakes this morning. Maybe go for something crazy, something with sugar in it, some sugar cocoa puffs. Live large. And another uh, simple one is just simply to adapt a life of awe. Awe is that feeling you feel when you look at the Grand Canyon and you're blown away. Or you see an animal in nature and you're like, and you want to pull your car over and watch it. We just need to find more awe in our lives. So let's push our limits uh, and let's today spend a little more time looking for something that literally just makes us stop and think, wow, cool, cool stuff. Anyway, some basic rules for all of us to, uh, you know, get that young spirit back in us. It's not easy, but uh, it's definitely worth it. we got a long life to live, so we may as well do it with some hope and some spirit. This is the Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead a healthier life. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, uh, our our friend on the show, Kim Giles, who's the president and founder of Clarity Point Coaching, uh, 
she joined us on a show several months back to talk to us about reactive parenting. We all do it. We all react in a way that uh, that maybe we're not so proud of. And so I wanted to revisit that interview today. I began the interview by pointing out how overprotective some parents are. Not only are we overprotective, but we freak out yeah. if they do anything wrong whatsoever. And we handle those situations so badly. Yeah. I, I've noticed our fear, which drives most of our bad behavior, yeah. um, nobody triggers it better than our children because they so make us – they trigger our fear of failure and looking bad. Yeah, and they trigger our fear of loss because uh-huh. we're going to lose them. Yeah. Nobody scares us more. It's so true. So we behave really badly towards our children and in a moment when they really need us to show up for them. Yeah. But we're focused on our own fear. I had a a, a relative come home from an LDS mission. They had been out 18 months. She's a wonderful young woman. She came home. When she left, she was very dependent on her parents. And when she now that she's been gone for six, 18 months, she's learned to be independent. But they don't necessarily want to let her go. So they're trying to to push her back in that box, and she just doesn't fit. And so she had to sit her parents down, which is something she never could have done before. And she's like, I need to grow up, and I already have. I just need you to recognize that. Now we need you to grow up. And And interestingly, they took it very well. But it could have gotten ugly and reactive because they could have gone, oh, so what? Okay, then go do it on your own. Do it on your own. And they could have gotten really mean, and that's not going to help. It isn't. Um, I really believe that life is a classroom. I talk about that a lot. We're here to learn. And I believe your children are your very best teachers. And what we need to start seeing is our children are providing lessons for you to grow up. And every time they behave badly or have issues in their life, a matter of fact, um, my poor daughter just this weekend, she the just... The one I've met? No, okay. my my 20-year-old daughter just spent $500 to fix her car, uh-huh. and Saturday night it got stolen. Oh, no way. <laughs> and it's gone. It's gone. Oh, no. And she's no. falling apart. She's so upset. But it's been uh. interesting because I I really see everything that happens in my children's life as, as a lesson for me, a chance for me to grow. That's great. And learn. And I think no matter what happens with your children, no matter what they do, that this is today's lesson for you. Uh-huh. Um, it's, and, always, it's always really about you. It is. Because you're the only one that can learn the lesson, teach the lesson, be the lesson. So I don't know if you remember, I told you about my very favorite parenting book in the world right now. It's called The Conscious Parent. It's uh, a very Buddhist parenting yeah, book. Yeah. But I have to read this to you. He, he says in the book, through our children, we get orchestra seats to the complex theatrics of our own immaturity. Hmm. So true. They awaken our unresolved emotional issues. But because our children are vulnerable and powerless, we blame them for our, react, our reactivity. Yeah, right. Front row seats. To our immaturity. So we've got to notice when you react bad and flip out on your kids with anger, you know, disappointment, all of that kind of stuff. This this is your issues that are coming to the surface. So I've I've really found four main issues that I think as parents we got to start being aware of that come up. And the first one is an attachment to our image. Oh, we're so into that. That if my kid does something bad, mm-hmm. I'm going to look bad. And I think I told you before, my, my daughter got a tattoo. Yeah, yeah. And that was my first, like, what? Oh, what are people going to think of They're me? They're going to think you're horrible. <laughs> 
So if we're reacting from that's, that place, it's all about you and your fear of looking bad. And it's not about your child uh, and what they need from you in that moment. That's so sad because your concern, then it's they just see that you're just like that shallow. I mean, yeah. Because you you tried it. Well, no, I just because it starts there. Tattoos are the gateway drug to piercings, <laughs> and then we just go. But in reality, the whole time they just hear you talking about your fear. Yeah, it's all That's about you. And you know, if you react that way, your children lose respect for you. Yeah, absolutely. They see right through it. So we've got to watch our attachment to image. Mm-hmm. Um, the second one is a, an attachment to perfection, oh, yeah. where we've really projected our fear of not being good enough onto them. And if you've got issues with perfectionism, you're going to have that about your children too. And again, it's really about your issues. Um, Attachment to conformity. And I see this in our community a lot where I feel safe when I'm the same as everybody else. Yeah, yeah, do not. Yeah, and you want your kids. Don't be different. We want them to fit in the box. Uh And it's weird because when one of yours just doesn't fit – and doesn't like, you know, sleeps through the bus or the lesson or – and they're – oh, I have a son that's – oh, man. What if he doesn't graduate? Yeah. He's missing a one assignment basically. But he has to go be tested on it. And well, what, what if he doesn't? What if he can't graduate? What if – what if – what if – but the whole time I'm thinking, and what? He's yeah, still, he's really got a great, won't be the end of the world. He's an officer. He's all these <laughs> other things. I'm like, why are you so worried? But he's – but what if he can't? It's the fear, but then it's – I didn't think of that. It's conformity. He's not – just do it like everyone else. Just do it We would like feel a lot else. safer if you would just fit in the box like all my friends oh, and their so children. Oh, that's so sad. We, we want you so predictable for our sake, not their sake. No, totally about you. That's pathetic. Come on. Okay, last one yeah. is an attachment to control. And control comes from that fear of loss. And, and a lot of parents really struggle with this one. They've mm. got to control everything with their children. Yeah. They can't let go and let them make their own choices because it's got to fit the picture I had in mind. But you, but you don't – they're agents, right? When they're done at 18, 19, 20 or whatever, they got to move on without you. But you've controlled That's them here. That's the idea. <laughs> so that might be interesting because what if I think – so if I think their success is because of me – because I've so controlled and I've been such a great parent. We have kids that play oh, musical instruments and, and everyone's like, oh, you guys are – these kids are fantastic. I'm like, mm-hmm. Matt, do you play an instrument? Not a, not a one. Yeah, Matt, you really don't get any credit not, for that. But it's That's funny, but we want to take credit. Oh, And then we're afraid if they do something bad, then, then we, it's, oh, it's, no, on, it's not on my kids. So we need to let go and yeah. distance. As a matter of fact, last night we had a Mother's Day gathering and my brother, his daughter just went to prom. And she's telling us the story – the, the boy's mother came with them to prom. What? Came to the dinner, came to the dance. Why? Followed them in her car the What whole does she day. know that they don't know? <laughs> you got to watch out for my son. I don't know, but talk about needing to let go. Seriously. My goodness. That's we, scary. We've got to start letting them be independent. Right. And we've got to not make their life a reflection on us. Yeah. Yeah, you can't get psychic. uh, Stephen Covey always taught you can't get your psychic income from their accomplishments. Mm, Because the minute my income is attached to their accomplishments, then I am benefiting, which means when they start failing. So we've got to kind of redefine our role as a parent. Really, we've got to understand that they are here on their own classroom journey with lessons to learn that have nothing to do with you. Hmm. And we've got to separate that and recognize you're here to learn your lessons, but their journey is not going to look like yours. 
The lessons they need to learn are totally different than the ones yeah. you needed to learn. They're not yours. You don't own them. No. And and yeah, we've got to not be attached. We've I love got to that. let go and trust a little bit. So I really teach my clients the key to this is first of all trusting that your value isn't on the line yeah. or attached to them, that you have the same value no matter what Regardless, happens around right. you. And that your classroom journey is going to be perfect. It's going to be the perfect education experience for you. And if we trust those, we ought to be able to let go of the attachment. Two basic ideas, really. You know, it's when I think about uh, reactive parenting, it's a, by the way, it was my book and my life could have been written on reactive parenting because I was the, I am the reactive parent. If I'm not careful. So that's why I was glad we listened to Kim. Hmm. Now, you guys don't do that. No, I do. You're young parents. My <laughs> wife looks at me and goes, what is up with you? And I go, oh, he's bugging me, my, my kid. <laughs> she goes, would you grow up? Your Fine. kid's bugging you? But you are, you're, you're not a reactive. My, my wife thinks I'm kind of going to war with my six-year-old. Really? Your yeah. six-year-old daughter. Last night, so it's... My my daughter has this way of not eating dinner, but eating all of the other foods that she wants. Yeah. And so last night, she just so happened to start feeling sick around dinner time. And then once dinner was over, she was up and running again. And I asked my wife, we didn't have a, a, a chance to finish this conversation, but I said, am I a bad father if I don't believe my six-year-old daughter? And like before I could finish my sentence, she's like, yes. Yes, like, you're oh, okay. I guess we'll talk about this later. <laughs> <laughs> but like that's one day. So she does it again tomorrow or yeah. today and she does it again tomorrow. Then we know she's probably going to be an actress. Well, it's just the timing of everything. It seems – I'm becoming like a conspiracy theorist yeah. because she seems to get all the foods that she wants without having to eat her dinner. And it's like, wait a minute. But she can do it in a way that you don't even realize it until days later. Or she's just being a kid. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know who we blame for this. Is it, uh, is it our parenting? Is it our parents that did this to us? Is it just who we are or is it President Trump? <laughs> Somebody needs to pay for our parenting problem. But it's crazy. I, I, I'm way too hard on her because I think about the meals that I wouldn't eat as a kid. Yeah. I wouldn't eat liver and onions when my dad would put that in front of me. Oh, yeah. And well, yet yeah. I'm, I'm just like so insistent. That That's, she eat this meal. What that tells us is you're becoming a parent, and you're becoming a wonderful parent at that. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, it is Parenting 101, right? It's hard. And so I think that's what's amazing. By the time your kids are 12, you I don't react nearly, I mean, half as much, not even that much. I, I hardly react to my kids anymore. So you're just not paying attention? The, yeah. Okay. They have to do something really crazy to make me think, what? It's just not worth it. Our biggest confrontation is dinner time because oh, yeah. the yeah. kids don't want to eat. Mm-hmm. So we usually just I'll if they if the boy doesn't eat, I wrap up the food, put it in the fridge. About a half hour later, I'm hungry. I bring out his dinner again. He gets mad. Do you at he, least do you at least try to make it fun and like do the foil into a swan or no, something? Okay. We just put it in the fridge. So we, we go You're through this process. Ship. I, I've been counseling. I, I look at my wife. I go, it's not worth getting mad over because it just ruins the night. Yeah. 
Just give him his food. We know it's things that he likes. Yeah. If he doesn't want to eat it, he'll, he'll eat learn. eventually. He'll learn. And and then I'm the one that goes off the handle later because of something he does. And she looks at me like, "What did you? What did we just talk about at dinner?" Mm. I know, I know. No, and then I it just, just makes me so do mad. You, yeah. Do you get the question? How many more bites? How oh, many more yeah. bites do I have to do? Just eat one bite. We gave him a piece of pizza last night. He's like, can I just like you know, one you know bite? What the real answer is, though, is you just don't give him any more food at the end of the day. I mean, you feed no. him dinner. If they don't eat it, that's fine. Yeah. Then they just get hungry, and they'll complain a million times. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, darn it. Remember dinner was so good? Remember those dino nuggets? His thing is, oh, I'm full, and he wants dessert. I'm like, really? Yeah. You were so full. Yeah, see? <laughs> oh, it's crazy. Parenting 101, folks. We're all living it. We're all trying to make it through it. And uh, that's why we do the show, to give you the tools, the information you need to be the kind of parent you want to be, to uh, lift our kids, too, to a whole new level. Uh, this is the Matt Townsend Show. We will continue the journey. More fun next hour. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Have you ever been uh, plagued by this uh, perfectionism? I, um, I see it in my life in a very specific way when I write things. Um, so I have... I, I literally right now have white papers that I've created on to, to write five books. And as I go through life, I keep picking up more information and then throwing them into these white papers. And so I'm ready to write five books. I just I just don't want to write them yet because part of what I found is writing my last book, I get so uh, kind of perfectionistic in the outcome of what needs to be in the book that I, I – I, I become immobile. I won't progress. I don't move forward. And I see that, notice, it's just this simple little concept that's in my head that makes me think I've got to, it's got to be perfect. It's got to be perfect. And the funny thing is, in, in all my perfection on that one idea, I then turn it over to editors, and then they just tear it to pieces. They just obviously didn't see how perfect it was. So if you notice, perfectionism is in the eye of the beholder. I guess unless unless of course you know um you bowl the perfect game in bowling there's there's something that you can do perfectly right 300 you can you can hit that number the hard part about perfectionism though is that it's not even just what it does to me it's also what it does to everyone around me then i start to demand perfection and now that we have the kids grades that we can look at Every day, every week, I suggest to the, my clients that I work with, um, they're, they're checking it daily. I suggest they don't do it daily. I would check it maybe monthly, twice a month. Let's get the numbers twice a month. Let's not focus on it as a daily endeavor, uh, maybe at the very most every week, but really spread out the, the way and the time we look at it. If you look at it at all, wouldn't it make more sense to just start to find out from our child what they're actually learning, what, how they're growing? The, the, um, some, here, let me give you a little test to see if you are a perfectionist. I'll ask you some questions. You run through your head, and it'll kind of help you see if, you, if, you're, if you're running or tending or trending toward perfectionism. Do you feel like your accomplishments are never good enough? You value people based on their achievements. 
You know, is an MD more valuable than a PhD, but a PhD is more valuable than a JD? Is a JD better than no degree? How about a master's degree? Do do they have to have, uh, you know, do they have to be an Olympic athlete or do you always lead with their achievement? Do you believe that your best just doesn't cut it? Do you take mistakes personally and then you hesitate to try again? Are you vulnerable to rejection? Do you uh, set impossible to reach goals for yourself? Are you hard on others and on yourself? Do you expect perfection from others? Do you develop almost an obsession with it? Uh, do you fear that uh, failure in the relationship, um, you know, is is a sign that you know if you have to go get marriage help or marriage counseling, is it a sign that you're not you're not good enough? Um, you actually end up not pursuing relationships because you fear the outcome might be that you might they may not work. Uh, do you tend to be critical of your partner? So if so, you may have uh, a bit of the perfectionism in you. Um, Webster defines perfectionism as a disposition which regards anything short of perfect as unacceptable. And the torment for perfectionists is that they never find anything perfect because it doesn't exist. It just can't happen. It doesn't happen. And so you end up putting yourself in this ever never-ending spiral where your goal is something that you can't attain, and then you become obsessed with seeing how you don't ever get there, and it makes you spiral and spiral and spiral. So I want you to be thinking about you. How has perfectionism been impacting your relationship? Can you actually build a healthy relationship uh, if you are a perfectionist, and how can we start to um, how can we start to get rid of it? Like our good doctor Curran was telling us, if if you sense that you've got uh, perfectionism in you, if you sense that you it's already kind of part of your identity, your psyche, you might be one of the people that ought to start to minimize your use of social media, because social media does tend to play on the perfectionist. It's, you know, you might use it in an inappropriate way that would actually, you use it to get more likes, you use it to get more external validation, you use it to go be more comparative to everyone else that's on your your chain. And so um, you might want to back off of that. We also want to maybe, if you see it in our children, start to minimize the metrics and make life less about the measurables and start focusing on what I call the intangibles. The, the tangibles are those things that we can see. The intangibles are the things that are harder to see. Um, You know, a grade on a report card is a tangible that I can see, but the hard work and discipline that was put into that grade are the intangibles we can't see. And it might be more valuable to start shining our light on those intangibles. The hard work. Talk to your kids about work ethic and, and their hard work. Talk to them about their discipline. Talk to them about how resilient they are how the adaptable they are, how they could actually, uh, when that teacher threw that curveball and had everybody, you know, not do this assignment, but do this assignment, talk about how well they handled those intangibles that got that assignment done. Um, there's so much more power in helping the kids gather the tools of the intangible than than just solely the tools of the tangible, especially when you live in a world that um, would rather hold up the tangibles as the only way of of living, the only way of making it work, the only way of making life valuable and good. We also, I think all of us need to be more careful with how we um, and what we hold up and what we esteem. 
you know, we probably ought not make as big of a deal about something that um, that seems, you know, like trivial in the end uh, of a, a vast or a basketball game, a football touchdown. These are wonderful things. But again, they're, they're things that in the in the end won't matter on the deathbed. And yet we spend so much time looking for the perfect team, the perfect game, the perfect outfit, the perfect partner. I think it's impacting a lot of our dating today. It's impacting a lot of how our, our youth uh, see marriage. I know a lot of people that don't want to go near marriage simply because it's not perfect. And yet, sadly, it's in that imperfection, honestly, that we grow, that we develop, that we become who we really are. We need the cracks in each of us in order to see the light, the goodness. I've noticed with my own clients, we need the breaks. They need the, they need the imperfections that make life hard so that they eventually have to look to God to live, right? They have to look to their God to figure out how to get through these difficult times with these difficult uh, imperfections. So praise the imperfection. Find the good in what you think is the bad and see if we can't make life a little bit more valuable in the chaos or in the breaks or in the imperfections. I don't know. It's a hard, hard uh, thing that I think all of us have to battle with at some point. And we now know our, our youth are really suffering from it. So let's, let's watch out for that. Little, just a little advice for you. Not, it's not perfect. Relax. It's just an idea. But uh, don't make arguments either that perfection, perfectionism is necessary. That's an illusion. Your God will eventually make you perfect. And by the way, your God already thinks you're probably doing a great job, even in the midst of all your imperfection. Let's, let's be real about that. Welcome back, friends. You know, everyone, every one of us, we do risky things at times, you know, things that maybe weren't thought out uh, to the degree that maybe we should have. But parents tend to think that their teenage kids are much bigger risk takers and they need to be more cautious. Uh, But is that true? Are they just out to to just do crazy things? Are they out to, to maybe not quite use their brain as much as they, they should be. Well, we've, we've got an expert on the subject. Jessica Flannery is joining us. She's a graduate student in psychology program at Oregon and uh, has written an article that talks about the method of madness that is a teenager's decision-making process. And we wanted to bring that to you to help us all figure out what's going on in the minds of our teenagers. Jessica, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Are our, our teenagers just bad decision makers or or are they prone to more risky behavior what's really going on that makes them seem like they're they're taking such big risks yeah it's a great question and i think most um parents have that question too so i think traditionally scientists used to think that scient- uh that teens were more risky because of kind of how their brain was developing so regions involved in planning and self-control weren't as developed while you know, regions involved in risk and reward were kind of heightened um, in these regions, which led to this kind of 
wired for risk, couldn't control themselves narrative um, about adolescence. And it's definitely a time where there are more risks being taken. But what we really wanted to point out um, is that it's not just about taking risks for risk's sake, but it's actually towards their developmental goal or their tasks at hand. What do you mean by that? It's, so they're not just trying to be risky. It's, it's really about them developing and they have goals that they need to, to grow into developmentally. Yeah, exactly. So their main goals as adolescents aren't the same as, you know, adults, as the same as toddlers. So their goal is to really learn and explore about in the environment and about themselves. So for the first time really in their developmental history, they're getting more independence. That's a time where they're starting to go into this next role of being an adult with the goal of being independent. And so with that, take some risks. So it's, um, Exploring new environments inherently means you don't know what's going to happen there. Um, for example, you know, you could always go to the same uh, market that you always go to, but then you'll never know, you know, new opportunities that could be around the corner or, you know, different things that could be a better opportunity for you. Interesting. So it really isn't about risk-taking. It's about independence-making. Yeah, exactly. So I think that's a really big part of it. It's um, learning about who they are um, just within themselves, too. So it's a period where they're kind of figuring out who they are, trying on different cells, but can mean, you know, exploring and trying on, you know, just as you would with fashion, for example, you might pick out a hat where you're trying to, you know, do I wear the baseball hat? Do I wear it backward? Do I wear it to the side? Maybe I try the cowboy hat on. Um, and ultimately, you'll pick what feels best for you, like what feels most like you. Hmm. And teens are doing the same kind of thing, but with their whole identity, that is so interesting, too. I mean, I have a son right now that is just loving the idea of growing his hair out and just <laughs> thinks it's the greatest thing in the world. And every time I look at him, I'm like, oh, come on, are we not ready to do that yet? Let's, should we not cut that hair yet? But really what you're saying is it's he's just trying to figure out himself, try new things, explore, and and I guess our job as parents is to make that safe. Yeah, and it is a really tricky period for parents, you know, in infancy and, you know, prenatally, there's all these books on what to expect, and even sometimes by the week, on this week, you should expect this to happen, and then all of a sudden, adolescents come, and there's no, there's not as many books, I guess, to really tell you what to expect, and it looks so different teen to teen, so it can be a scary job for parents, too, to figure out how much, you know, control do I let go of? How much do I rein in? So it's a whole new avenue of figuring out what's too much control, what's enough to give away. Is it, is there, and I guess the overall benefit of some of this riskier behavior, though, is that that they're they're learning, they're growing. I mean, I guess our assumption as parents is that they're not learning or they they <laughs> wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't go climb on the roof if they were learning. But um, but they're really climbing on the roof, roof and sitting up on the roof or doing risky things to, to be independent. Um, do do they they they're doing this naturally? Do do they actually learn as they're doing this? Confirm for us as parents that that this is a learning process. Yeah, and it's a yeah, it's a great question to kind of think about. Um, but I think it's helpful to think of the lens that you're thinking through. So. For a lot of these decisions, we think, would we do this as an adult? Is this an alerting opportunity that we would take? And a lot of the times the answer is no, we wouldn't choose to learn that way, and so we don't understand why they would choose to do it that way. 
Um, but they have different priorities and goals that they're going toward, but actually the learning that they're doing is in service of that. So you can even think about maybe sneaking out, for example. Um, you know, that there's a lot of risk there. Parents might think of how they're not learning or thinking about the future of those consequences that if they get caught or something really bad happened. For a teen, though, what they might be thinking is, they're actually planning quite a bit of how to get out of the house without the parent knowing and thinking in the future, if I didn't do this, what would this mean for my peer relationships? So there is some thought and planning involved and in learning about what's going to happen, but their goals are different, so they're kind of weighing different uh, risks and benefits than what an adult would be doing. Are their goals in their mind, are they, are they overt goals that they actually recognize in their mind, or are these just developmental like stages that they're going through and the goal is kind of subconscious? Yeah, I would say that probably varies period, or adolescent to adolescent, and that's a, a good thing to think about too, that there's just a lot of individual differences between teens. So when we think of the risky teen, um, it's not all teens are out doing crazy things and they're all you know ending up incarcerated. Actually, most of us make it out of teens uh, year is quite fine, and we end up into adulthood. Um, so they are able to make these decisions and kind of get through it. Yeah. Do you? I mean, <laughs> parents, like you said, we use our filter, and first, we know first our kids are sneaking out. We know someday they'll be drug addicts, and then they'll be in prison. Um, that's kind of where our mind naturally goes. But yeah. but overall, you're saying that these these kids really are just they're just doing what's developmentally normal and we as teenagers would have done similar things just in our own world. Yeah, exactly. So taking risks doesn't mean that, you know, your team's going to end up in prison or something like that. Um, and, of course, there's different levels of risk. And so the risk that we're talking about isn't the really extreme risks that are involved in mortality um, rates or um, greater incarceration rates. So just this idea that kind of normalizing that risk-taking is, in fact, something that is occurring and isn't most likely going to end up, for the most part, for most teens, down this really negative trajectory path for them. What can we do as parents to facilitate um, healthy risk-taking and and independence-making? Such a great question, and it's a hard one because each teen is so different, and so I think the best thing that uh, parents have on their side is they know their individual teen the best. Um, And so with research, we kind of at this point are really looking at these averages. But what we also know is there's no such thing as the typical teen. Um, There's so much difference teen to teen. So beyond just age, understanding a little bit of what your teen is going through. So and actually a good um, analogy to kind of think about is if, um, you know, you're learning the high beam and there's a spotter there. And the goal is to, you know, eventually perform and be able to do tricks and perform and, you know, get rated on being on the high beam. So when you're learning, you have the spotter right underneath you, and they're close, and they're catching every fall, and eventually they move away, and the goal is to have them on the sidelines. But sometimes, and if you think of the parent as kind of that spotter for the kid underneath the high beam, they might move away too quickly, and the kid falls. So there's going to be some tumbles along the way. But eventually the goal is you know, they can go on the sideline and they can watch from a distance. So sometimes it involves, you know, giving the kid the car keys with knowing this could be an accident, but eventually they need to drive on their own. 
So the parent also has to take some risk, too, of gauging when their kid is ready for that next level um, of independence. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Again, we're speaking with Jessica Flannery, who is a graduate student in the clinical psychology program at the University of Oregon. Her her, uh, research interests broadly focus on how early adverse experiences influence the neuroendocrine pathways and functions. Um, And Jessica, one of the things that uh, I, I wanted to ask you, because I'm sure you'd have some incredible insight for adults as parents, but also for the teens. If you were to speak to a group of teens, what advice would you give teens on on their developmental process of of becoming independent and risk-taking? What would you be talking to the teens about? Yeah, that's a great question. I think a lot of it would be to also give themselves some slack. I I think teens really do know that they get a bad rap from the public, that they just can't control themselves. But, you know, give them a little bit of insight of, yeah, you know, things. some things might be a little bit harder for you. There are differences in how they are thinking about things, but that's not a bad thing. So I think I would just give some reassurance that, you know, they're figuring it out and they're going to be okay and that it is normal to be exploring and not sure what's going on. Um, And to, yeah, give that freedom to explore a little bit. Because it really is. I mean, it, I, I remember doing riskier things that and and like I just t- talking to my son um, that's a senior in high school, the stuff he does as a parent, I'm like, oh, yeah, you can't do that. <laughs> you can't do that. And he's like, I know that's why I didn't tell you till now. Um, but it, it really is. It's kind of a rite of passage. But to know that developmentally their brains are stretching and that a lot of this is very healthy, it's powerful. I guess the the great thing would be is if we could make it safe enough for our kids to open up to us, to talk about it, um, so we can be that spotter for them. Yeah, and I think at least my opinion for that would be really that one of the best ways parents could do that is – Instead of, you know, the more we can think about what is their function of that behavior, so they're not just, if we think they're doing this to be risky, then we might get more easily mad at them for their behavior and not understand. Um, But instead of getting mad, thinking, why were they doing this? How is this helping their goal of learning and exploring their environment um, and going towards the things that they really care about at this time in their life? And so that understanding, I think, is a really key beginning step for you know, teens to feel comfortable talking to their parents about this. Yeah. Is there, are there things to watch out for that tell us, okay, this risk is, now we're just being stupid. Now it's just, now you're really crossing a line. How do we, how do we help to draw the boundary? I mean, obviously anything that deals with mortality, um, but are there other, are there other signs that we should watch for that is a boundary? It's a very tricky question um, because really within culture that varies quite a bit. So there's cultural differences in what things are acceptable. There's differences within the U.S. even of what people think is different. So cultures within the U.S. And then there's just times within the U.S. So what things are appropriate or norms within society, what things we let teens do changes a lot there. So there's a lot of other variables that kind of tell us what is okay or not. So besides those really extreme ones where we're more at the mortality level, it's, it is really tricky because there's cultural differences that I wouldn't want to impose my own views on any one parent for that. Yeah. What, what, um, g- give us an example, though, of uh, a, like a cultural view. 
So in some cultures, uh, adolescents play a larger role in the home during adolescence. So generally, adolescence is kind of thought of as this time where there's this, more broadly speaking, this reorientation towards peers. So they're caring more about what their peers are thinking than what their parents are thinking. But that's not always the case. And parents still play a really big role in adolescence, too, and how they're developing. And in some cultures, that plays an even larger role. So in adolescence, teens are gaining more responsibilities within the home, um, and so that would play a large role in what types of risks that they're taking and also their social identity and how they mm. perceive themselves. That's so true, isn't it? And, yeah, you, you, can't, you can't say what's right or what's wrong for any uh, one person. I mean, some people, they're not out yeah. doing – they're not out toilet papering houses and egging people. They're actually, you know, taking the night shift at home, making dinner for their brothers and sisters because mom and dad have to work. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's a super important point to really drive home is that there's so much individual difference um, from teen to teen. So we don't just have this one teen that's this big risk taker. And for the most part, we all make it out okay. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that is such really great news. We're going to make make it out. This developmentally is normal. Foster, do what we can to foster their independence and help our kids be as healthy as they can uh, and and be there as, as kind of a spotter that can help uh, help them minimize as much risk as possible. Is there anything else, Jessica? I always kind of ask for the one thing. What's the one thing that um, overall we should remember about our kids as parents uh, th- as they go through the teenage years that would make the biggest difference, I think, for us and for them? Hmm. I think the big thing that I would say would be really important is to remember that they aren't an adult. Um, and so we shouldn't be expecting them to act like an adult. Um, I think that can be one of the hardest things is they start to look like an adult more than in the past, and sometimes they are acting like an adult. So those lines get really blurry, but to really just remember they're not supposed to act like an adult right now. Um, they have another developmental task at hand, and that's super important. So to not get mad at them when they're not, yeah. <laughs> they're not being the adult yet. That's such great advice. Such great advice. Jessica Flannery, thank you so much for your insight on our teenagers and their risk-taking behaviors. They, uh, they're just they're, – they're normal. And the other great news is it sounds like, folks, they're going to come out. They'll be okay. Uh, they are seeking to be independent and grow with some of their independence, which is essential at that stage of their life. We will continue the discussion straight ahead to a little Coach's Corner for you. This is the Matt Townsend Show. you boy you too stupid to do what your coach tells you because life doesn't come with a handbook you need a coach here's dr matt and his coaching corner play ball play ball hey what uh what do you wish your parents had done for you as a teenager i mean mine would say well we should have gone to hawaii a lot more but what do you wish they had brought for you what do you wish they'd created for you and um, maybe that's where we should begin with our kids is starting to figure out what they need from us. And every kid and every child, every adolescent is so different, aren't they? Some need a, a lot, I think, a lot of structure. Some need uh, and a lot of maybe coaching. Others need, it seems like, less coaching, but they just need support. They need you to be a cheerleader for them. Um, others might need 
maybe less cheerleading and even maybe more just you know investment financial and uh, and time and energy investment everybody needs something different but uh, one of the some of the basic things that we know the kids need more than anything is um, they, they need to figure out somehow how we can how they can become more resilient. A, a lot of kids, I believe, are terrified about the world. They they don't know how they're going to fit in. They don't know what kind of career they're going to have. So I think initiating some of those conversations with them when they're as they're as they're getting into teenage years. Um, would be a very powerful thing. I think another thing that would be really important that our children learn today uh, would simply be this: the idea of how to work, how to actually put their head down and solve a problem and, and figure out ways to grow and to develop and to learn to become a healthy, a healthy adult. Uh, I have a son-in-law who was raised in a family that just – they just work, period, <laughs> And there's no way around it. You just you just work. Um, and so what a powerful lesson he has in his life because of how his father and mother set him up by, by just, you know, you can figure anything out if you're willing to create uh, and invest your own time and your own energy and work. Another thing I think we could teach our kids um, on this growth to life is the power of character that everybody has a journey to make and everybody has something to offer and and their job their responsibility is to go find what they are to bring to this world and they have a responsibility to identify what their purpose is their mission is and they're the only one that can bring it and they have a very unique responsibility as an agent as a as a being on this earth to identify what that's going to be, and to start owning or taking stewardship of it. So I would make sure with our kids that we are helping them understand what their purpose is. And at first it could be generic purpose, right, to learn, to grow, to develop. But then there will become a specific purpose, I think, that um, eventually appears for each and every one of us. And you as an adult might want to ask yourself, do you know what your purpose is here on this great big ball of mud? Because if you don't, um, then what are you trying to tell your kid to do? <laughs> How are you motivating your child if you're not sure um, what they are supposed to be doing? So make sure you've got yours figured out a little bit and, 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 and help them with that. Another thing that I think every child uh, should have to learn to do and should learn to do is to learn to do hard things. Um, you, there's nothing more real about being an adult than you sometimes have to do things you just don't want to do because no one else will do it. I mean, how many times have you had one of your children come home and, you know, bleeding and like, uh oh, I fell on the fence and now we need to go get stitches. And then you're spending the entire night getting stitches. It's just hard stuff. And if we could teach our kids that, hey, it's not about what you feel like doing. It's not about, you know, what mood you're in. We're going to do hard things. And we're, that's part of that work ethic I was talking about earlier. But um, that is something that would actually generate more and more character in our children if they had to learn how to do the, um, the, the hard things. Another interesting thing is being vulnerable. One of the lessons that I'm seeing more and more come into my office are a lot of young adults that don't – they don't know how to be vulnerable with other people. 
They literally don't want to tear down their walls. And they have walls that may have come just because of how we parented them or we didn't parent them. It might simply be because, you know, they're suffering from their parents' breakup, their parents' divorce. It might be suffering from abuse or other issues that happened in their childhood, but they don't know how to be vulnerable. And so if we could help our kids with with the ability to make it safe for them to apologize, make it safe for them to make mistakes— I think our children should be um, taught that mistakes are the key to life, and we need to make mistakes. That's that's how this works. And so, um, what a powerful thing if if you could if you could somehow exercise their character to learn to be vulnerable in their in their relationships with others, to admit quickly their mistakes instead of you know conjuring more stories up. Um, anyway, another interesting idea that uh, I found that really strengthens character is the ability to to actually be silent. You don't always have to say what you're thinking. You don't always have to create more noise and more um, more just just loud behavior and and ignorant talk. Sometimes it's best to just learn to hold your tongue, right? And again, these are all harder things to teach our kids because they might be a little reactive, but the older they get, these are things we should easily be able to to model for them. And I would always suggest we start first um, with our own with our own activity, our own behavior, instead of assuming that these are just things that our kids should do. And uh, one other thing that we might want to be teaching our children is that um, that everyone is equal. Every other human being on this earth is equal to them in power and opportunity to become something. They may not be equal in reality because of how they were born. We Not everybody on this earth today has equal rights still. We say they do, but, you know, some people don't even know that they have rights. Some people don't even know that they can go to school. They can do other things. They don't see that because it's not a reality of how they live and where they live. But we as adults can help our kids see that how blessed they really are to where they live and, and the life they have and figure out how that they can lift other people to um, to higher higher life and a higher place in their life. So if we could teach more equality, we might actually see results of more equality later in life as as we go through that. So lots of stuff we could be teaching our kids. And again, we don't have to be perfect at it. We just have to be, I think, committed to it and trying a little bit more today to be a little bit better with our kids today. So what's here's the question. What's the most important thing that you need to, to kind of integrate into your parenting today? What's something you can start doing with your children today? What's one of these areas that we talked about, whether it's equality or silence uh, learning to keep their tongue, learning to uh, be vulnerable with others, learning to do hard things, uh, recognizing their own journey. What's something that you know you need to implement more with your children today and even implement more in your own personal life today so that you can have and be this great change that we need? Anyway, interesting stuff, folks. We're all on the journey together. None of us have. Uh, none of us are always going to be in the pole position. That that role is going to rotate, but uh, we can learn together. We can lift the rest of the world together if we just share what we're learning. That's why we do the show. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. 
Welcome back, friends. You know, Julie Nelson is uh, has a master's degree in marriage and family and human development and is a contributor here on the Matt Townsend Show. She teaches classes such as applied parenting and marriage and relationship skills at Utah Valley University. Also is the author of the book, Keep It Real and Grab a Plunger. And a few months back, we talked about the importance of fathers in early development of their children. And we wanted to replay and revisit that interview. From the very beginning with brain development, and you know, it's it's kind of hands off for many dads. They kind of like to say, yeah. "Okay, that's mom's domain." And from the very beginning, she's the one spending all the time with the kid, getting up in the middle of the night and doing the feeding. And he just kind of waits till they're like what eight, and he can throw balls with them. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. yeah. Even younger, <laughs> you could throw, you could wrestle with them when they're three, yeah, two, yeah. Um, so very beginning, we want to start that bonding so that we can get into the wrestling and feel like I can be a part of their life from the very beginning. Yeah, it, it seems like. Moms don't always like how we inject ourselves into the child's life. Yeah, see, there's, we this, there's this dichotomy where the fathers overstimulate and the moms want to calm down. Yeah. The fathers do the rough play. The moms do the cuddling. Usually and, dads end up accidentally hurting their kids more. <laughs> like my, my husband. I share this with my students at the university. We talk about this, the importance of dad and play. What happens when you put a kid in a room with a bunch of adults and you hand a, a nine-month-old to uh, off to a, a, a dad in the room or yeah. you know just a, a male in the room? What does he do? Throws them up in the yeah, air. Yeah, we start right? tossing. Yeah, like a football. Because we love them. Yeah, that's right. That's how we show we love them. And my husband, he, um, he, I don't know how old he was, a baby, and his his father had just returned from a tour of duty in Vietnam. hadn't seen him for like six months or a year <laughs> or something like that, you know. So he comes home. Dad's not been there for a year. Everyone's so excited, and um, so he comes to the door, picks up my husband, who's a child, young child at the time, throws him up in the air a little too high. Oh no! Gashes his forehead on the chandelier, and they have to go to the emergency room. Are you <laughs> so he's got this scar on his forehead for the rest of his life. <laughs> but no, they do. They Thanks, do. Dad. Yeah, yeah. But research has shown that the the fathers from the very beginning who are more involved from the Family Medical and Medical Leave Act, um, that paternal leave really does play a part in the well-being not only of the, of the company, it does benefit yeah, the, company the company and of our economy, but the, the children themselves in the family life, yeah. um, they find research that fathers are more involved in playing with their kids as well as their care, and the children flourished academically. Hmm. Um, so I think this, this ingredient that the fathers bring into um, the dynamics of the home where they do have more of this uh, physical play, yeah. and we're going to talk more about benefits of that. Because the it, it also just seems like if he bonds with his kids, he's more predictable, he's safer, he'll be around longer. It's mm-hmm. he's a part of it. If he if he just kind of goes back to work He's not going to be as bonded. Yeah, well, anything you invest in, and yeah. anytime you um, have that that time from the very beginning, then you feel like I am an actor in this person's um, life, and I need to be there, and I have a, a, a contribution that's unique to what the mother gives, and not that the mother can't do physical play as well, and the fathers can't be nurturers, but they each can bring their own. And, and research has shown that fathers just tend to, as one research says, tend to engage in more physical, stimulating, and unpredictable play than mothers do. Mm-hmm. Um, this same research. Researchers said that they what they did was rats. Okay, we always we only always try everything with rats first, right? Of course, right? Of course. <laughs> well, they're great fathers too. <laughs> they are, and um, if we damage their brains, it's okay, That's right? right. Yeah. But what happened was is they were they raised these rats in stimulating environments with complex toys and social contexts and acrobatic challenges, so more physical play. Hmm. And these rats outperformed rats that were reared in isolation. The rats had more synapses per neuron, more dendritic branching, and increased capillary flow. The 
father's orientation towards the physical play creates a stimulating environment that is similar to that that was experienced by the high-performing rats. Interesting. Um, so you have the more blood flow. You have more of that complex, yeah. you know, the, the, the uh, um, dendritic. So, so it's maybe less communicative, but it's more mm-hmm. – but it, it, creates, it creates kind of a physiological benefit. Yes. And there's also this thing called the BDNF, um, which increases the neuron growth in the parts of the brain when you have more of that stimulation. Hmm. It's responsible for memory and logic and higher learning skills, which is necessary for academic success for the first six years of their life, five years. Yeah. You are, you're stimulating the, the brain to do better, to perform better in school. So fathers play that part. So when mothers see, get a little anxious because yeah. dad's doing a little bit too much Why of this rough, yeah. Yeah. it really is good as long as it's safe. Yeah. But it's good it's, it's okay. if they fall down and get, you know, owie, that's right. fine too yeah um, because they learn one of the things that happens is is that is that children learn that unpredictability is part of life yeah and so when you have these um give and takes and things are not always scripted like we're going to play a you know a Uno or whatever, yeah. and it's not just here are the rules. Roughhousing doesn't really always have rules. No. You just kind of like tumble and up. wrestle, and you pl- make it up, and not everything goes the way you want it to. And so you learn with socio-emotional development yeah. that um, you can have um, unpredictability in your life. You can learn to read um, the difference between play and aggression when it goes too far. You bet. Which you, happens a lot. Which happens where you play and then it escalates. And then, and then the kids and cry. Then, <laughs> and dad, dad has to go, hey, let's bring it yeah. down. And dad's the one that's kind of helping the child learn when it's going too far. That's that emotional management. Mm-hmm. Emotional, social, em, emotional intelligence helps children to read and interpret social cues. Yeah. That's what you're doing with fathers is you're learning how to – when someone's crossed the line, mm-hmm. when we need to pull it back. Um, it also um, has been linked with search, research to control violent impulses later in life because you know the difference yeah i mean you've been taught from from you very young so um you also fathers you know moms do the cuddling they do the kissing of the boo-boos but dads have more of a tendency when things get a little bit more out of control they distract their kids from the pain maybe they got themselves hurt they do some humor let's go do something else now we distract them take their mind take their mind off so they learn how to cope when they're out in the world and they need to um be involved with some maybe some painful situations. It's interesting because you just say, you think, oh, yeah, we think everyone's replaceable. But you may not be because you naturally may be more of a an empathic person but may not try to overstimulate your kid, which a dad might tease, tease, tease. Oh, about to cry. Calm, calm, calm. Absolutely. Oh, make him cry. Oh, make him calm. Make, mm-hmm. oh. And these it's an interesting benefit. Mm-hmm. And and it seems like an extreme to your partner because they're like, oh, why do you always stimulate the kids at 9 o'clock at night? <laughs> We're trying to get them to go to bed. Absolutely. That was Julie Nelson. Julie K. Nelson, we call her the bomb mom. And again, uh, she wrote the book uh, Keep It Real and Grab a Plunger, which provides a lot of great parenting tips on the show. Um, but uh, Jeffrey, see, so that's good news for you, Jeff. You are an essential, important role to the development of your children. I feel needed. You are needed. And <laughs> you need to wrestle with your kids more. You need to you need to have fun with them. You need to stimulate them. You help them understand how to not overreact to life. I'm trying to not just focus on the fun because I think there's a danger in that too, which I'm finding out. Yeah. My wife and I recently came to the realization that I think we spoil our kids. Yeah. So I'm trying to back off a little bit, be a little more firm, but also find more productive ways to spend time with them. Like, let's read this book together. Exactly. And, but, and make sure you make sure you uh, 
teach them to I mean make sure you stimulate them a little late sure. at night so so that they have to learn to calm down yeah they have to learn to relax but then also taking things like chores and making them not seem like they're so much like chores yeah. so for instance the other day my uh, six year old for part of her homework had to count to a hundred oh okay? wow yeah. Um, and so and I thought, instead of just having her count to 100, why don't I go hide while she's counting to 100, and then after 100, she comes and looks for me. How fun. So we combined it with hide and seek. But what if she didn't finish? <laughs> there was there were a few pauses, but she, she picked it up and, and did an awesome job. That's pretty cool. See, you're a good father. That's a great sign that you're gonna, you're, it's going to work. I'm going to make it. And the mere fact that your wife is home. And helping the kids every day. Yeah. And helping them understand how dad's got some issues. Mm-hmm. Thank heavens for moms that uh, walk the kids through our crazy little uh, our crazy little lives. That's it, folks. Hour number two. It's in the can. Remember, uh, we're doing what we can to give you the tools you need to pick up your game and be the good in the world. We'll continue the journey next hour. More fun. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. It's interesting because there's, it seems like to me, many ways to to skin the cat if one is skinning cats, which is such a bad statement. Um but one of the things I, I find helps a lot is is try to identify how you approach uh, life, how you approach relationships. On the show, we've had so many different guests with uh, various tools and ideas and information. And you might even notice with yourself, sometimes you're like, yeah, well, that, that would be great. They just don't know me. They're not like me. They, I mean, they don't know how hard my partner is. Um, and so – one of the things you may feel like is sometimes the advice doesn't necessarily work for you, and it might actually be more about how you approach uh, life. It may be a little bit different. Some of us I, – I have a son that's a really talented musician, but he doesn't follow uh, any rules, um, at least consciously. He he didn't – he wasn't classically trained. He didn't sit down and learn to read the notes. He just plays by ear. And he can sit there and in one minute pretty much play any song and he can do it on two or three uh, instruments. Just hear it and plays it. But then if you sat him down and tried to teach him you know, with kind of a classical approach uh, and with lots of structure and with lots of theory and it would, it would probably ruin it for him. He's a guy that needs to just kind of wing it and improv it and doesn't want to be told how to do it. Um, but he, you know, it's it's just different how he approaches it. One is through feeling and one is through kind of rules. Um, and, and you see it too just in the classical world. There's a right way to perform music and a wrong way versus kind of the jazz world where the whole idea is we're, we will feel our way through it. We are going to, you know, improv a bit. But even interestingly in improv, there are rules. Um, a lot of those rules may not ever be stated. They just might be felt. But there's also timing at play. There's a little bit of chaos sometimes in it, where in classical it might be a lot more controlled. 
Uh, in classical, there might be a more con- preconceived process for how this needed to go. In improv, there, there's there's an emergent reality that takes place, um, some based more on moods and feelings. So think about your relationship. How do you try to, to get through it? Do you do it by feel? Do you do it by rules? And sometimes there might be a great way to, to mix both of them. But in the end, I believe there are some universal principles that apply to both that, that I think would help both. One rule would simply be if you want to have more harmony in your relationship, you've got to make a safe space, a safe space where you know mistakes can be made and we'll be fine, where a safe way that we can talk about the mistakes that were made, um, a, a safe space where we can try to kind of go off script a little bit. We might want to, you know, premeditate some of that and talk about, hey, can we take a little bit of time and create a safe enough space where we can do some improv in the relationship? And so you might be struggling in your marriage because you're approaching it almost like a classical, very rule-oriented person compared to a, a partner that's that's used to winging it and doesn't want to be oppressed by all the rules. But we can still make the safe space for both of us, Right. Sometimes the safety means we need to know there are rules, and sometimes the safety comes by knowing that we also can safely improvise. So look at your relationship. Are you safe to improvise? Is it safe for both of you? Is it safe to fail? Is it safe to make a mistake? Or are we going to get a big lecture if something's gone wrong? Another thing we could be talking or doing is sharing and listening with some more courage, Sometimes it's scary to think that somebody's going to change the song. Um, and, you know, some people love to play in such a way that they change the song so much that it really doesn't work. And it might be better that you don't try to play with a group. Maybe you're just somebody that would rather just play solo. Um, but let's talk about it. When you keep changing and shifting and doing this and this and this in the relationship, it makes me think that you're not thinking about the relationship. It's more like you're just thinking about what you want to have happen. Um, so if you do want to play a really cool jazz song, you you do need to be thinking about the whole, right? Not just your individual rights and 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 realities. We want the whole sound to come out effective and good. We also need to know when it's time to just shut it down and let the other person go and let the other have their turn. Sometimes in our conversations, they're so one-sided that it really is just a solo. This isn't any kind of musical harmony or play that's going on. It's just solo and then the next solo and then the next solo and then the next solo when instead, wouldn't it be more powerful to have someone playing a solo while we are behind them, supporting them, playing or playing other harmonies that, that help or other sounds that help create beautiful harmony. Also, we need to adjust, don't you? At some point in any relationship, you got to be good at adjusting the principle of take going from where you thought we were going and adapting to where we are. And then when it's your turn to lead, moving it to the next place. And when they move, we adjust. They might go louder. We might soften our tone. We soften our tone. They might go louder. But we stay in. We stay in the, in the music. We stay in the conversation. And by doing this, it really is this, this back and forth. And I think a lot of us just need to be confident enough to stay in instead of blowing it up and having somebody leave. Let's learn to sit in the chaos a little bit. Let's make it safe for each other. Let's adjust to each other. 
Let's offer our part, though, by the way. You have to offer your part of the song. It's not enough to just keep everything hidden. And know that tomorrow we do it again. (laughs) And tomorrow we do it again. Just like in music, um, I mean, it would be great if we could just hand out all the sheet music and everyone just followed the music, right? But the reality of life is it's much more dynamic than that. Many times it's more like jazz, where it has to be made up as we go. But it doesn't mean there aren't real principles at play. So we ought to identify what worked. Take some time after we've had a discussion that we were able to effectively manage and and process through. And let's identify what specifically worked in that situation and see where that takes us. Wouldn't that be powerful? Anyway, it's never easy, but it's doable and it is learnable. You just have to want to do it and practice and practice and practice. And practice. An interesting thing. That's why they are teaching more and more improv in corporate America. They're teaching more, you know, flexibility and adaptability skills to people in the corporate world, which is very principle oriented. Um, lots of rules, lots of structure, lots of hierarchy, and yet we also want you to improvise. It might be a reason why so many people are disengaging from their workplace because it's just not flexible enough for them. It's too rigid. It, they feel trapped. And so uh, flexibility has got to become a part of all of our lives, all of our relationships. Anyway, just my idea. It's not, not perfect. It's just, it's just an opinion. We all can have one. We'll continue the journey more straight ahead as we do what we can to help you live longer and love stronger. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back. You know, it's time. Dr. Paul Jenkins is back with us. He is a clinical psychologist, actually graduated right here from Brigham Young University. And um, also, uh, if you go to his website, Dr. Paul Jenkins, drpauljenkins.com, you can get all of his latest and greatest, including his book, uh, The Positive Pathological Positivity. I had to get that right. Pathological Positivity. It's uh, And someday we'll have you do the alliteration because you've got a really cool – yeah. We, we're not going to do it now because we got to get no. into this issue uh, of how to get your kids to listen without yelling. They wow. just don't listen. Yeah. So you got to yell. Common, common question. Yeah. Why, why is it a problem? I mean you would think that the children would have such respect in their heart for their parents. Right. They just and just waiting listen. with bated breath just to – Hear what yeah. gems of wisdom right, are going exactly. to fall from the lips of their Not wise, happening, sagely it? parents. <laughs> no. But why? Because the kids are interested in their own thing. Kids have got stuff going on. They're doing their thing. Right. And they're busy doing it. Yeah. I had a client, Matt, that was a um, single father. Wow. Okay. Had three or four kids. Just pulling his hair out. As as he's talking to me about this problem, and he says, I have to yell and scream before my kids will listen. I, I have to ask them 12 times before they'll do something. <laughs> and so I asked him a question. I said, why do they do it the 12th time? Well, that's a pretty yeah, good question, great right? question. Why do they do it on time number 12 Did and not all the other times them? before? Did Well, check it out. So the kids are doing their thing, right? Yeah. 
And dad comes in and says, hey, guys, finish up what you're doing and and come in and get ready for dinner or whatever. Yeah. And what do the kids hear? They hear. Yeah. It didn't even compute. There's there's some kind of white noise floating around in the environment. And it's because they've been trained to decide if this is important or not. And I say trained to. I mean, we do it naturally, right? right. So these kids are thinking, wait a minute. Was that sound important? No, probably not. I'm going to keep going with what I'm doing, right? So dad comes in time number two. Kids. Same thing. Come on. Yeah. And it registers with them as, well, is this important yet? Should I listen to this yet? No. No, not yet. Yeah, right. We're not quite there yet. Not at crucial mass yet. Yeah. We haven't hit that threshold, right? Yeah. Time eight or nine. You guys, come on. I'm serious about this. Now, Now let's get cracking. Yeah. And they process it again. No, close, but no. Yeah. Not yet. And finally, Dad is popping coronaries, and he's turning red, and veins are all over, you know. And the decibel level finally hit a point of threshold. And so the kids hear that, and they're like, oh. Now something's different. This is where I need to pay attention because if I don't respond now, I'm going to get clobbered. Yeah. Some other. So I'm talking to this dad, right? And I say, clobber him the first time. Yeah, don't wait. (laughs) Go off right now. Don't get me wrong. I'm not advocating clobbering your kids. What I'm saying is, what if we turned our words from garbage into gold? Yeah. So that when our our sweet offspring hear the melodious tones of Uh, our loving voice, (laughs) right? Yeah, sprint. that's, That's in a calm, cool frame and tone. Yeah. And they hear that and they're like, oh, this is important. I got to respond to this right now. Yeah. And they and they move. And right? you, but so you can do it out of fear, right? So this is motivation, really. Right? Yeah. You can fear them into it. How do you create the gold language that they actually want to hear? You know what? We train each other. Yeah. I was taking my little dog for a walk the other day. And one of my neighbors just jokingly said, so are you walking your dog or is your dog walking you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. I don't know. Yeah. Honestly. It just depends on the day. He's trained me to do certain things. I've trained him to do certain yeah. things. And our kids are the same way. So we train each other. And our kids have trained us to yell. Now, when you think about it that way, it's like, wait, that's not fair. Yeah. Right? I don't want to be yelling. I don't want to be a yeller. Well, of course you don't. Because you're a sane, stable, loving parent, right? But you but you do end up yelling. But you've been trained to yell because your kids respond when you yell, and that's the trap. Yeah. So what we want to do is put in a system that has our kids esteeming our words to be much more valuable. Yeah. Turn them from garbage into gold. And we do that through teaching and training them that there are consequences that immediately follow the calm, cool, collected parental voice. Yeah. And we don't have to yell. And, and and give us an example. Give us a taste. So if I'm trying to get my kids to come upstairs to have dinner mm-hmm. and I don't want to yell down five times. Right. What do I do? 
I like to start with giving two choices. There you go. Two choices. Always give two. Okay. Now your kids are going to try to pick alternates. Yeah. Um, don't they don't worry like about your that. choices. But here's the key: you give them two choices, both of which you are completely fine with. All right. You're cool with either one. Yeah. Either one's fine with you. See, normally as parents, we give them two choices or we give them one choice, right? Yeah. And there is no other choice. So you, well, you guys want to come choice. eat or you want to just go right to bed? Yeah. Well, that might be an example. Here's the key. You got to be okay with both choices. Yeah, but nobody wants to, I mean, really, put your kids to bed at six? Most of the time, kids know that you're bluffing. Yeah. When you do... I, I, I remember a time when our neighbors had a little toddler, okay, three, four years old, and they're leaving to go somewhere <laughs> that's a couple of hours away in the car. And as they're loading up the car and mom is frustrated and this kid is just not cooperating, yeah. getting his shoes on, I think, was the issue. And, and she yells at him, Ben, you put your shoes on right now or we're going to leave you here. Okay, now, are parents going to leave him no. home? No. Three-year-old kid. No. Does he know that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, my parents are more responsible than that. So They're he's got the, who's got the power. Yeah. Right? That was a bluff. What if mom gives him two choices, both of which she's okay with? Because she's not okay with leaving him home either. Right, right. And that was the trap. Okay, because he'll test her on it. He'll call her on that. Oh, yeah? Well, I'm not going to put my shoes on and watch. You're not going to leave me either. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So what if she gives him two choices that she's okay with? Ben, would you like to put your shoes on yourself or have mommy put them on for you? Yeah. Now, little two- and three-year-olds, right. they want to do everything they're themselves, sure. right? They, they like that little rush of power. Yeah. Is mom okay with either one? Sure. Here's another one. Ben, do you want to get in the car on your own or do you want mommy to put you in the car? Yeah. Either way. Do you want to go on my feet or your feet? That's great. Now, here's the other part, and you probably picked this up from those choices. You make sure that one of those choices you control. Interesting. It's a control thing. Think about it. When parents are yelling, they're out of control. Control, yeah. They don't feel any control, and that's why they go to the desperate yelling. Yeah. Because their kids have trained them that they can get a response from yelling. What if you control one of the choices, 100%? I mean, I can pick my kid up and carry him to the car. Do you want to go on my feet or your feet? Either way is okay with me. Right, right. Do you see the power? What if they're older? Like, what if it is the kids in the basement? Mm-hmm. We're going to give them two choices. Two choices? You're okay with the, and I both guess of them. Both of them. One of them would, we'd want to put in my power. And one of them you control. Do you want to come up and eat your food? With us, or should we just eat your food? What about because <laughs> that's what happens at our house? Well, okay, if they don't yeah. get up and eat. Everyone's going to want to. You're eat on their the right food. track. Yeah, Matt. you you have to be able to control it. And with older kids or teenagers, you lose some of the control that yeah. you had when they were little kids right. or toddlers, right. right? Right. So you just have to do enough thinking. And and quite honestly. Parents, we need to do a little more thinking than we want to. More thinking that it would make it so you don't have to yell as much. Exactly. So spend some pre-work thinking. If you spend half of the time thinking that you're spending yelling at your kids, we're going to make all kinds of progress. This will be great. This will be perfect. Yeah, so you think it through. Now, what do you need to think through? What do I 
control. Yeah. And you make sure one of the choices is something that you control. Yeah. Here's an example. Hey, buddy, do you want to come up now for the free meal or later for the one you pay for? That's great. Yeah. Okay, now some parents are, well, I can't make I'm him pay. Well, him. really? Yeah. They're going to pay one way or another. Here's two more choices. You can go on, you can pay me in cash or I'll put you on my easy payment plan. Start doing work. Easy payment plan is code for, (laughs) I've confiscated one of the things that you really like and you can get it back once you pay me. Once you've done it. It's collateral. Yeah. I mean, too, I mean, I guess, does it matter that that the, um, the choice has, does it have to relate to the the actual issue like, like be logically tied yeah, does it to have the to? infraction no i mean cuz we hear that but then i think do you guys want to come up for dinner uh-huh. or do you want me to come down and turn off your game okay because that's what they're doing is playing a game probably and yeah. so i mean at my house so i'm thinking you know what does really it have cool, to Matt? be tied there's a little box usually in the hall or the closet <laughs> That controls the flow of electricity to it's certain groups so of your Yeah. Would you like to turn that off yourself or um, are you okay with me turning it off? I'll use the master switch up here. And, and you can just cut the power, right? Sure. I mean, you control that. Now, is that mean? No. Yeah. It's mean to yell. Yeah. And it's not, it's not in integrity with what you want. Well, get clear about what you control and what you don't. Yeah. Because when you give it that much thought... And you really focus on, okay, what can I control? And don't worry about, I'm glad you brought that up, because you don't have to worry about whether this is logically tied to whatever the infraction is or whatever the issue is. It doesn't have to be. The only essential item here is that you're okay with it, because if you're not okay with it, you won't do it, and it's an idle threat. Right. And that you control one of those choices, because that one becomes default. Yeah. Think about it. You give your kids two choices. They want to pick door number three, right? Right. Well, that's fine. They still get the default because the default is the one that you control. Yeah. And if you're in control, there is no need to yell. Um, again, we're speaking with Dr. Paul Jenkins from drpauljenkins.com about how to get your kids to listen without yelling. Mm. I guess part of this, too, is um, you got to be okay with the outcome. And then if it works— I'd remember it. Notice that. (laughs) (laughs) Let's do more of what works. This is going to be helpful, right? Because we can keep doing this. You know what, Matt? That's why people yell. That's why we yell because it worked. It's a trap. Yeah. Because uh, the trap is, oh, well, this worked. I'm going to keep doing it. Yelling is actually a reinforcement, and it increases the probability that the behavior you just yelled at is going to increase. Oh, yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And, and it's two, a parent trap. It, it, it is a parent trap. And part of this, it seems like, as we look at our kids as well, it's also yelling may not work later in life when mm. they have the power to just say bye. Right. So if you want to influence them, you, you want to, you probably want to start doing it in a more principled way. Calm voice, calm yeah. face, calm body. Yeah. No need to yell if you are in control. Right. And you don't want to show up at your kid's house someday and hear your child yelling at his child, your grandchild. Right. You're going to yell at them for that. You're going to be like, oh, that's (laughs) totally what I've handed down. Well, what else? What else can we do to make it so these things work? So we got to make sure 
we give them choices. We got to make sure we're okay with the outcome and yes. that we have some control over at least one of the measures we're giving them, the choices we're giving them. You know, a part that we didn't talk about, Matt, and this maybe goes without saying, but we have to say it apparently. Take care of yourself. Yeah. Take care of yourself. If you're feeling all frazzled and stressed out, you're more likely to yell even though you've got other tools that you could use. Yeah. And that's just because of brain chemistry and how the fight or flight response kicks in and it shuts down the thinking part of our brain. I mean, there's there's reasons that we can point to in neurophysiology about why this happens to us. If we get hijacked by our own life, yeah. we're not in a position really to have a have the the influence that we would really love to have with our kids. So taking care of yourself so huge. That's so true. I was on a plane recently. I always get reminded of this when they're going through the safety routine, right? Yeah, yeah. Put your own mask on first. Take care of yourself. Remember that piece? Yeah, absolutely. If you're out cold in the aisle, you're just in the way. Yeah, just probably part of the problem. Yeah, you're you're going to become a barrier to the rest of us. So you get your own mask on because then you're in a position where you can actually step up and help out your kids. And some of that could be just getting skills, getting tools, getting educated, getting the information so you know how to do this. Well, you know, this particular title, How to Get Your Kids to Listen Without Yelling, I did a YouTube video on this. It's had over 20,000 views in a month. And it's and it's because people are really looking for some tools. Yeah. They want to know what they can do to get past this thing that doesn't feel right to them. Because yeah. when you yell at your kids, how do you feel afterwards? Oh, you feel horrible. Yeah. Well, but you're just mad at them because they cause you to turn into a monster that you're not. So you're really actually mad at yourself. They're just doing what works. They're being a kid. Yeah. Yeah. And they're testing it out. Do I need to listen yet? Nah, not yet. And I guess to some degree, too, um, with all of these things, you you could let them learn, too, from their behavior. Just the, like if, if, if what honestly, better way? If I really? invited my kids up to eat mm-hmm. and if they're not going to make it up to eat, my wife always then still makes them all a plate, covers it, seals it with a kiss, and then, just puts it away for them. Then why should they but come But I'm like, eat? no, let's eat their stuff. Let's eat it. <laughs> If they're not going to come now, let's. There's got to be a consequence to not being there for family dinner. So, let's not starve our kids. Yeah. But honestly, Matt, the average American kid is not starving. No. Right. Yeah. So that's not what we're talking about, folks. Your kids can miss a meal. In fact, it's good for you occasionally to fast yeah, for a absolutely. meal or two. Um, what if the two choices were: Hey, would you like to eat with the family or not? That's it. Now, <laughs> they're, they're going to say, well, I'd rather play Fortnite. Well, okay, yeah. well, we're eating now. So if you want food, What usually now. happens is that mom or dad is not okay with that choice. No, exactly. That's why I said two choices. You're okay with both of them. And you control one of one them. One of them. Now, if you can't control whether your kid's going to come up and get the food, you can control whether you charge them for it or That's not. Right. That's right. Or That's whether you have food available yeah. After. You get to control that. Would angle. you like the free meal with the family? I like that. Or would you like to buy your own meal later? Yeah. Well, and, and then when they're there, make sure the meal is positive and friendly, not right. full of rancor and anger. and Give them a reason to want to be there. Yeah. So good. It's like you've done this before, Paul. Yeah, I can't remember if I have or not. 
<laughs> you must be a father. Yeah. How well, many kids do you have, Paul? I got four. Two grandkids. Yeah, you've learned. Yeah, you've learned. That's where you learn this stuff. But I've also had so many brilliant, amazing clients over the years that have taught me from their own experiences oh, yeah. what works and what doesn't. So from 23 years of clinical experience in working with families, this actually works. Yeah, this works. And and works in a principled way. Yes. To establish a peaceful, loving environment at home. People are yelling and screaming. That's not fun for anybody. No, no. And it traumatizes kids and it teaches them a pattern that they then perpetuate in their own families later on. Yeah. So the more you can attach to these kinds of principles and practice them in your own home, calm voice, calm face, calm body. I learned that from Nicolene Peck. Yeah, yeah. Uh, great specialist and, and expert in parenting. It increases your power as a parent. And I don't mean that unrighteous dominion kind of a power, you yeah. know, where you just control everything because you're the parent. It's the kind of influence that comes from a calm, loving, benevolent parent where those kids know that they're loved no matter what. And when the parent speaks, those words are valuable hmm. and important and crucial to my success. Yeah, right. Absolutely. So then, then your kids really do start to listen. And you're not yelling. So you've trained them to respond to a calm parent. That's powerful and and principled. And uh, boy, to finally just have peace while you're parenting again, that's, that's the goal. Dr. Paul mm-hmm. Jenkins is his name. The book, uh, Pathological Positivity, is the book he wrote. But if you go to his website, drpauljenkins.com, you can find a lot of great stuff, including Live on Purpose TV. I guess there will be a link there. That one's on YouTube. That's on YouTube. Yeah, YouTube Live on Purpose TV. And b- by the way, dozens and dozens and dozens of topics with Dr. Paul teaching um, stuff for parents, for couples, just for human life. That's what it's all about. It's like the Matt Townsend show every day. But uh, yeah, but you know, you get to handle it with uh, Dr. P. That's right. Good stuff. Thanks, Paul. Thank you, man. Appreciate you. We'll continue the journey up next. Do a little coaches. uh, No, not coaches corner. We're going to do a little empty news with Jeffrey Liam Simpson. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, It's time now to go to do some empty news with Jeffrey Liam Simpson. Jeffrey, what's up? I'm going to give you a story that sounds, you know, pretty normal compared to other stories. Yeah. Um, But then I'll give you the twist at the end. Ooh, excellent. I don't think you'll be able to guess what it is. So there's this guy who stole his uh, neighbor's car. It was a 2005 Ford Escape. And uh, the resident... Said that the the neighbor said that this guy broke into the apartment looking for keys to her vehicle so he could flee to the Peoria International Airport. Once at the airport, he tried to ram his way into the terminal. He then accessed a restricted and secured area, made his way onto the tarmac, and onto a plane. What? Once there, he realized the plane was empty, and he left the plane and ran toward a Peoria Peoria County Sheriff's deputy's car, where he used a landscaping brick to break out the back window. Oh, boy. The plan? To take the car and drive to Florida, according to reports, the deputy was able to shut off his car remotely, and then he and others corralled the suspect after he tried to run away. (laughs) Jeez. 
Uh, here's the twist. Can yeah. you guess why he was doing all of this? Uh, it has uh, something to do with the title of the car, 2005 uh, Ford Escape. He was running from prison. He was worried about an impending zombie apocalypse. Okay. So apparently he had other th- other things on board. Right. No yeah. word as to whether or not uh, any zombies showed up. By the way, does he know how to fly an airplane? I don't think that was his main concern. <laughs> I think he was just trying to get as far away as possible. Clearly he wasn't thinking. Yeah. Clearly. Um, but, you know, for somebody that wasn't thinking, he got kind of far along in this, in this non-plan. Plot. If yeah. only he could have flown an airplane. How about a travel back in time story? Let's do it. Okay. Where would you, by the way, where would you travel to if you could go back in time? Um, I would go to Jerusalem. Really? Or an Israel. Mm-hmm. Time of Christ. Okay. That's where I'd want to go. It's very noble of you. Well, I just don't want to be, you know, I'd hate to like fall into the, you know, I wouldn't want to be in a battle royale between major countries sure. somewhere. I yeah. just want to that be a be nice, fun. peaceful, loving place. Well, there are parts of that that weren't so peaceful, but we don't have yeah. to talk about that right now. Um, so there is a Colorado family that went to the store, picked up a box of 100% natural granola from Quaker, took it home, sat down around the table, started eating it, and uh, noticed that it tasted a little off. The wife took a couple of bites, uh, whereas the husband Mm. ate an entire bowl of the stuff. Of course he did. uh, Take a a closer look at the box. Come to find out that it had been printed, or the the, uh, best buy date was February 22nd, 1997. So they were eating a box (laughs) of cereal that was 21 years old. So in a way, they were traveling back in time, right? That's not kind of the travel, time travel we're looking for. Well, it's probably the closest you can get, though. Just eating expired food. That's bad. Yeah. I don't care how you look at it. That's bad. Okay. Wow. That is some seriously bad news for that family. Always check the dates. Always check the labels. Hey, up next, we're going to be talking to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. You're not going to want to miss it. This is the Matt Townsend Show. It's my house. Come on. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome back. Friends, um, we we all have to make it through life, right? And if if you're so fortunate and blessed that you have a spouse that you are working together with as you co-parent your kids, um, boy, are you lucky because many don't. And, um, you know, I was raised with a single parent in the home and it it actually it's hard, right? It makes things a little more complicated. And if you're not careful, the kids could start leading everything. <laughs> and so we want to learn to work together. Last hour, we talked about some some keys for all of us to be better co-parents. One is to simply, uh, I remember the fact that we got to be on the same page. So part of the co in, in um, co-parenting would be communicating and cooperating. We got to talk. We got to ask some questions. We've got to be pretty clear about what kind of impact we want to have on our kids 
and what roles we want to play and what are you willing to sacrifice as a parent. I've noticed a little bit more and more in our uh, in our parenting that it's it's a little sometimes it's we don't want to sacrifice our lives like you know we don't think our kids should impact our lives maybe as much as they do but that seems crazy right because they do impact and they should impact and uh sometimes the reason why we love our kids so absolutely much is because we have to give so much to help them have a healthier life another tool that i was thinking that we could use to be better co-parents is to start leveraging each other's strengths right most people like to do things that they're good at or, or that they're better at. And so maybe one of the things we could do as co-parents is to let our spouse feel like they're good at some things. If if one of your kids is really good at putting the – or one of your uh, – if your spouse is really good at putting the kids to bed and they do that so well, then let's let them do it. Let them – I mean some are just really good at making memories. Some are really good at telling stories. Some are really good at uh, calming the kids down or – um, you know, waking them up. Let's find what our partner does really well and then actually hold it up as a strength instead of just focusing on a task. Uh, sometimes it might be great to let the task be driven by who has the better strength in that area. And it doesn't mean that um, it doesn't mean that, you know, that's the only person that can do it or that the other should feel bad about that. But I just I've I felt like I had a special skill as a father of um helping figure out what's going on with a fussy kid and either distracting him or changing the mood or changing the situation so I that's what I would do my wife was incredible at being more structured and organized so she would she would create the organization she would help us create the structure I might step in and then do what I can do well um Sometimes just to allay the guilt. My job, middle of the night, get up. She had them all day. She uh, fed them. She did all of these things. So once we were bottle feeding, I could do it. It was my job. And I loved that. I loved knowing that I had a role that I was uniquely kind of gifted at. But um, another thing that might help us is while we're while we're seeing our partner's strengths, we might want to remember that it, we really need to hear four positives to every negative. And if you want your partner to be more involved in the parenting, then you probably ought to overwhelm your partner with the positivity. Find what they do do well that really does amaze you, and let's start being very sincere and 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 really appreciate what they're doing. Don't just keep treating this like, well, yeah, it's the least you can do. Um, we, we all need to be involved and feel like we matter. Also, another thing that helps us parenting in our parenting is to use more routines to eliminate the reminders. Sometimes you don't need to keep harping or, neg- or negatively talking about what has to be done now if we just have a, a set routine. The benefit of routines is that they can happen the same way every day every month, every year as we're growing up. And kids like routines because then they know how the pattern goes. So another name for a routine would be a ritual or a habit. Um, and the, the, let's, get, let's get a set routine for how we go to bed. Let's get a set routine for how we have family time at night. Let's get a set kind of daddy time ritual or a mother time ritual or uh, whatever. Just get a ritual set so that we can start to uh, – to get it systematized. 
then it's not a, you know, a crapshoot and a free-for-all every single time we have to figure out the night. The night should not need to be recreated and reconstructed if we could just create a, a fairly simple routine. And again, I have six kids. I understand routines change. And I understand during baseball season, the routine may differ a little bit or during football season or, you know, during dance uh, when we're doing our dance contests and things like that. It's things change and rituals are powerful. So um, maybe we could try to create a few more rituals. And remember one other thing. As you're trying to work with your partner and co-parent, remember that the apple does not fall far from the tree. So the more that you understand your spouse and their approach to life, it means the more you're going to understand your child. Getting to really get clarity with your spouse is going to help you get clarity with your kids. They share the same DNA. So instead of just offloading and being frustrated and just seeing your partner as a crazy anomaly, sometimes I found the best thing that motivates me is to see my partner as um, really the the source upstream of my children. So a lot of my children's behaviors might flow from what they've seen me do and they've seen my spouse do. So you don't have to be frustrated necessarily because your partner is different. What you could do is start to see that I need to understand my partner better so I can understand my kids better. And I'm going to invest. Sometimes it's easier to invest in my kids Um, then it sometimes feels like with your partner, but there's hope because any struggle I I can master with my wife uh, will help me be able to better master it with my children. It's not, that's why divorce doesn't always work because in the end, a lot of the traits that that frustrated you about your ex-spouse still lives and dwells inside the hearts and minds of your children. Anyway, basic ideas for co-parenting. Remember that... uh, You can learn how to deal with your kids as you learn how to work with your spouse, work with more routines, sincerely leverage each other's strengths, and communicate, communicate, communicate. Co-parenting its the way we get through life and uh, still feel like it's a blessing to have these little gifts from heaven, these kids. 